the main challenges of the pandemic were the changing needs of our members. They were instantly shifted to a different level of practice management. How do I do virtual care? How do I advocate for billing? There's all sort of new problems that surface. I mean, we've kind of had those problems before, but suddenly they were like top three priorities now that we have to deal with. That's Dr. Ahmad Zabib. He's our guest on this special COVID-19 series episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Ennis. Since 2018, Dr. Ahmad Zabib has served as the Chief Executive Officer of the Canadian Rheumatology Association. Prior to that, he had a long career at the Arthritis Society and Heart and Stroke Foundation. On this special COVID-19 episode, we are going to talk about the role the CRA has played throughout the pandemic, both in the everyday lives of rheumatologists and behind the scenes. Ahmad, welcome to Around the Room. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Ahmad, within about two weeks of the CRA annual meeting, the world essentially shut down due to the coronavirus outbreak. At the beginning of the pandemic, what were the initial challenges facing the CRA? That's a great question because, uh, you know, we've been been monitoring the situation right before um, the ASM and uh, we were trying to communicate with the members in advance just to make sure that we're ready for whatever might hit us. And we were so lucky that it just missed us by a few days, I would say. Um, but the main challenges um, were surrounding, you know, the attention span and, and the, the changing needs of our members. They were instantly shifted from the traditional optimal care practice management to a different level of practice management. How do I do virtual care? How do I do, um, you know, advocate for, you know, billing? Uh, there's there's all sort of new problems that kind of surface. I mean, we've kind of had those problems before, but they were very minor on the priority scale. And suddenly they were like top three priorities now that we have to deal with. So there was a bit of a that kind of a moment where you had to think about what do we do? Who do we tap into? Because there aren't many experts in that field. Absolutely. And, and I'm curious to, to get even deeper into that. How did you actually pivot the organization from whatever your annual plan was to suddenly all resources and all hands on deck had to be working on the COVID aspects of rheumatology in Canada? How did you actually functionalize that? We're so lucky to have such an engaged membership. About a third of our members are involved somehow with the CRA, um, more than just attending a conference, I would say. And that kind of gives us sort of a constant finger on the pulse in terms of what we can, what we should uh, do. And um, sort of leadership 101 in crisis, what leaders should do is communicate, communicate, communicate. So what we started with is first right off the bat is starting with communication and open up those channels of communication. So we created the president's update, the weekly update. And um, that seemed to have been very well received. And we started creating opportunities for dialogue when we kind of did a lot of needs assessment. And I'm surprised how well responded to those needs assessments were. Um, But that was the basis basically of all our action is, is listen, communicate, listen, and respond as quickly as possible. So, so those were kind of the, the issues that you were facing as a leader of the CRA. I'm wondering, personally, what were some of the biggest challenges you, you personally faced? You know what? It's uh, adjusting to the reality that the kids are going to be at home all day long. I mean, we're a virtual organization, and, and we did not really have a lot of business continuity issues like many associations had to struggle with. We don't have a bricks and mortar. We don't have an office. 
my commute consists of me walking down from my, you know, bedroom to the basement. Um, so that wasn't an issue per se, like having to go to the office or forgo going to the office. But the, the idea that, you know, the kids are home all day long, you know, it's me and my spouse, both of us had to deal with that situation. And, you know, it's, it's also making, I mean, my kids are young. They had to understand that when daddy's in the room and the room is closed and you could hear some sort of a conversation going on, you just don't barge in. Uh, right. That was at the beginning, though, after a while, I think people are now sort of immune to these things. We've seen people on CNN where people are just walking in the back. And uh, actually, this is some of the positive side, you know, side effects of the pandemic that these conversations and at least the video chats become a bit more human. I mean, you don't have to be that polished. So, yeah, I think those are positives. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, I wonder, one of the earliest hurdles that I know you dealt with and what rheumatologists were dealing with was the hydroxychloroquine shortage. And I was wondering if you could articulate a little bit about how you actually did deal with that and if there were any lessons that we learned for the future in terms of making sure our patients have access um, to the medications that they need. Yeah, this this actually, um, I don't want to say it was sheer luck. I would say it actually was a lot of planning in place. And before that happened, that made us um, capable of responding in a timely fashion and in a, the, the effective fashion that we were. Uh, first, we, we instituted a rapid response uh, process for our therapeutics committee to be able to respond to issues. Because typically, it takes us about you know, a couple of months to be able to draft a position statement, sometimes like to a year, depending on how how controversial the topic is. And there's a lot of back and forth between the board and the committee. And um, so we, we created this rapid response where, you know, we're, we have a process in place. We're able to respond within two weeks, maximum three weeks. And during the pandemic, that went down to two days, maximum three days. And, um, you know, thanks to a phenomenal um, um, you know, volunteers who, whether they're the chairs of committees or the members of the committees who were so in tune that helped us respond and, you know, but there's not enough evidence. That's, that's the, that's the other reality that we were working with. You had to be practical in, in an environment with very little evidence. Um, and then on top of that, we also, you know, created a, a stakeholder engagement a committee and a chair position for that, and and Dr. Carter Thorne, who's who's in that position, is extremely well connected. He sits on multiple committees. He sits on external committees. He has connection with Health Canada. He has connection with industry. He has connections with with the pharmacists, with with patient groups. So there there was a lot of factors that um, kind of served um, positively in in our case, and we had. We had thought about this uh, in advance, and, and I think all came together and helped us be the, as responsive and as effective as we were during the hydroxychloroquine. As far as the lessons going forward, I would say it is important that we keep the essential medicines in rheumatology top of mind. Um, I mean, we're hearing about methotrexate being uh, on the list of potential shortages, and, and this is not acceptable. This is Canada. Um, whether there's COVID or not. So I think keeping that file open and keeping our attention close 
uh, on that on specific specific file and having dedicated resources for it will will serve us um, uh, well in the future. So uh, you know uh, around hydroxychloroquine then medical misinformation's been a pretty major issue throughout the the pandemic. And I'm curious what the CRA's role is in providing trustworthy and up-to-date information for physicians and patients. I think you've alluded uh, to some of that in, in the weekly updates, um, but can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, there's also a fine balancing act between evidence um, and, and ethics as well. And as you know, the lack of evidence is not evidence of lacking of effect. So with, with that in mind, um, you know, we want to maintain the scientific position and and be the voice of reason where possible. Um, I know for a fact, coming from the arthritis society, we depended heavily on the the CRA for their medical expertise. And when they when they had a stance on um, um, a medical or scientific topic, uh, at the same time, it was refreshing to see some of our board members and some of our therapeutic committees members um, debate, you know, should we have a position where there's lack of evidence? And what if we're saying that no priority should be for our patients when this medication can actually be life-saving? And in case of shortage, I mean, it's, it becomes an ethical question. Um, I'm very happy with the outcome because at the end of the day, it was sort of a two-pronged approach. I mean, let's stick to the science, but at the same time, let's ensure that we are bringing together the right people to talk about the shortage and mitigate against it. And it was sort of the best outcome that we could possibly hope for. Um, it, but it could have gone worse if we didn't have the right parts in place. I think I think that's interesting. I, I kind of see a through line from the CRA statement on medical cannabis use and some of the statements that had to be made on Plaquenil methotrexate treatment of COVID-19 patients where you essentially say at the outset that we don't have enough information to endorse this treatment or that treatment, but there's enough of a need to have a conversation about it that we can't wait for a long-term cl clinical trial to come out before we can actually, before we have to give an opinion or start a conversation. And so I think it's, this seems like a, a similar point where you said, we've not met our threshold for endorsing certain therapies, but we have met a threshold to discuss them. And, and I think that that's definitely helpful for me as a physician to at least get some insights from experts. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you know, we know that you don't have all of the answers, but some of them can be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So as the pandemic dragged on, um, and I, I can't even tell what month we're in of it anymore. <laughs> Every day is very similar to the last. Uh, what do you see as the main function of the CRA now? Um, there's a bit of a constant evolution happening with respect to the pandemic. We absolutely have to stick to our original plan, go back and not forget that we have other plans in place and, you know, optimal care and education of our members and, you know, all the key strategic priorities, they remain in place. We also need to make sure that we are also not overburdening our members. I mean, there's a lot of Zoom and webinar fatigue now. So it's how do you keep adjusting your offering to meet the needs of your members as they go? Um, and also planning for a future where has a lot of unknown. So this is one of the things that we talked about with the board and we've approved and we 
finally announced it was let's make a decision on the 2021 ASM and let's make it virtual so we can start planning for a virtual session um, and then reduce all the, um, you know, or take away all the unknowns and let this be a great way for us to learn, an immersive way to learn how to deliver a virtual session. So come year after, we actually can deliver a hybrid session that is of high quality, both in person. We've, we, have, we know how to deliver in person. We know how to do it very well. Next year is going to be a learning experience, and we're going to let the members know we're going to learn. This is sort of a beta test for us. And um, in the year after, we'll, we'll you know, uh, bring... Um, this hybrid model. The other angle is I always find opportunities in crises and it's an opportunity to engage our members on new topics. It's an opportunity to demonstrate leadership. It's an opportunity to be heard for the brand to be recognized. It's also an opportunity for the CRA brand to go beyond Canada. If we're doing virtual, um, we can totally reach rheumatologists from across the globe. And if you think about it, Canada has a very special place in medical education internationally. And um, it's just an opportunity for us to, to grow the CRA brand. So, you know, it, it, the pandemic's definitely been hard on everyone, but it's nice to hear that at least there are some, however thin, silver linings to, to some of the difficulties everyone's going through. So that, that's nice to hear that you see some potential uh, benefits coming out of that. So the CRA does, does quite a bit for all of uh, the members across Canada. What can members do for the CRA? I would say there are a few things that the members can do for the CRA. One is is read the messages um, and and open up your email. I know we have great open rate, 50, 60%, but there's about 40% who don't open their emails. Um, second, I would say volunteer. The best way to bring in um, your expertise and also to get something in return because you're going to form phenomenal, uh, you know, um, relationships, you're, you're going to probably create your next project together. Um, you may even get a position within the CRA as a senior volunteer and get a, one of your pet projects sponsored. I would say get engaged at the very least, just, you know, reach out and say, I'm interested. Uh, we always, we're always looking for people to do something and realize CRA without you is doesn't exist basically. CRA is for you, by you. Um, the more you put into the CRA, the more you and the rest of CRA members will get out of it. Um, before we go, I have one more question. Is it true that before you ended up in medical school, you actually considered being a DJ? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, I almost gave my dad a heart attack. Actually, I did give, I think, my dad a heart attack, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, at 16, I decided, you know what? Science is not for me. I want to be a DJ. And, uh, you know, I think I got hit by my head by an Eastern parent, you know, just saying, wake <laughs> up, buddy. <laughs> this is not what we've been paying for, for private school and, you know, and all this prep that you're going to. So, yeah. <laughs> so as a former DJ, was there a favorite song that's helped you through the pandemic? Uh, there are multiple songs that helped me through the pandemic. I'm, uh, I'm a, a newbie in guitar. Uh, and, um, you know, been trying to do a lot of flamingo and sort of Arabic flamingo mixed guitars uh, playing. So, yeah, I would say, you know, flamingo has been a great pandemic relief for me. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, Dr. Ahmad Zabib, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> Thanks for the great job that you and, and the committee do for, for us, especially on these podcasts. Actually, I would listen to the podcast that you were doing um, on COVID wards uh, during my run today, and it was, it was fascinating, actually. So great job. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was Dr. Ahmad Zabib. That's it for this episode of Around the Room, the Canadian Rheumatology Association podcast. We are produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, Kevin Bagenoth, and Aaron Fontwell. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. We're supported by funding from Scotiabank, the Canadian Medical Association, and MD Financial. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.